0: What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future passion. Explore paths to careers that will excite and motivate you. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu to find out how to connect to your future.
1: Hello, my name is John Smutanka and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest, and with respect, is a fascinating uh, person, a sports writer, a columnist, uh, John Shulian. John was started in, in sports, uh, loving it, and, when he was a kid, and has been involved in it much of his life. He also is a Hollywood screenwriter, and written and created characters and shows that uh, all of us will remember. He's got his own novel, which he wrote in 2016. He was awarded the Best uh, best Sports Columnist for the Nation on two occasions. So he's got great credentials to talk about anything in sports and about Hollywood. And what a great career he's had. John Shulian, with respect. So, John, how are you today?
0: I'm doing well, John. Thank you.
1: John, where are you from originally?
0: I was born in Los Angeles, uh, then lived here until I was 13. Uh, Then we moved to Salt Lake City, where I went to high school and got my undergraduate degree at the University of Utah. Then off to Northwestern for a master's degree in journalism. Uh, then I was in the army for a couple of years, sixty-eight to seventy, and then uh, I got my first serious newspaper job at the Baltimore Evening Sun. May it rest in peace.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, too many of our newspapers, our great newspapers around the country, the same thing can be said. Rest in peace. But you, you got an interest in sports. How did that come about?
0: Well, I, you know, I was a, a kid and I fell in love with baseball. Um, first I remember going to a, oh, I lived in L.A. before it was, before the Dodgers came here. It was a minor league town with two minor league teams. The, the L.A. Angels, who played in old Wrigley Field, which was built to, to model Wrigley Field in Chicago, and the Hollywood Stars, which was my favorite team. And we were sitting in box seats one night. I don't know how we got them. We really weren't in that income bracket. But uh, the ball player walked by, a big guy, right-handed pitcher named Red Munger, tobacco chewing, looked over at me and saw this head of white hair and said, How you doing, Whitey? And I guess I was sunk from that point on.
1: <laughs> you know, I was a baseball pitcher when I was in uh... High school, college, and I loved it. I just loved it. And, and I've tried to express to people why being a part of a, a baseball team and a best baseball game is so uh, powerful. But you were there. You were a player, and you were also an observer. What is it? What is it about baseball that's so that's so attractive? Well,
0: I think the rhythms of the game. You know, when you're a fan, you can sit and talk about old ballplayers while you're watching a game. You know, with today's ballplayers unfold in front of you. You you can also read the New York Times while you're while you're watching a ball game. Um, It was just it's it's it was a talker's game, uh, particularly when I, excuse me, played it as a kid. You know, there where I played. High school ball, American Legion ball, uh, amateur league ball, which was against guys who had played in the minor leagues for a couple of years. I actually played against one guy who pitched for the Cincinnati Reds, right-hander named Ken Hunt. Uh, you know, guys who had been college ball players, guys who just couldn't get it out of their system. Um, and, and played for a really good ball. I mean, the best time... The best summer I ever had was the last year I played baseball. I was 22, and we won the State Amateur Cham- Championship. Um, and We had a terrific ball club. And a guy at first base who'd been drafted by the New York Yankees. I never signed with him. He should have. Uh, just had a, a pitcher who went 8 hey, No, I can still see him throwing his curveball. A, guy, a kid named John Nordquist. Anyway, so it was just we had a great, great time. And every everything was funny. Everything we played hard and we laughed a lot and drank a lot of beer.
1: <laughs> you know, it's interesting you mentioned laughing and uh, played hard because I remember when I was playing Legion Ball and Pony League and then a, a amateur ball after that. One of the things, my, my mother used to watch all of our games, and our, my father as well, and my mother loved the dialogue that went on. Uh, so if we were in the dugout, uh, our guys would be razzing the pitchers and the players, the batters sometimes, whatever. And, and she said some of the best humor she's ever heard came out of the mouths of people sitting on the bench or out <laughs> in the field.
0: Yeah. I remember we had a pitcher named Art Peterson, who had been a phenomenal kid pitcher, but as he got older, he had arm problems. And he was selling a good ball game for us. So. And he calls me out to the mound and says, he's tired. And I'm thinking, you got got like a six-run lead, it's the bottom of the third inning, and you're tired? <laughs> you know, come on. And our, our, our manager, big guy named Steve Schaff, great character, Comes trotting out. He says, "What's the matter?" And Art says, "I'm tired." And Chef looks at him and says, "John will tell you when you're tired." <laughs> Pat him on the shoulder and went back to the dugout.
1: <laughs> Were you the catcher? Yeah. That you know they talk about the catcher catchers uh, wearing the tools of ignorance, the the mask and the and the the protect chest protector and whatever. And but I remember. The catchers that I and I was a pitcher. I remember the catchers that I had were some really tough guys, and and they they did just what you said. They would come out and say, "Are you crazy? What are you doing here?" <laughs> I remember one time uh, a catcher came out to me and didn't like that I wasn't throwing hard enough, and he said, "Stop it! You know you can throw. Get get your well get your tail in gear, and throw the damn baseball." And I thought, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir." <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I had a few discussions like that when I was catching. Yeah.
1: Well, let me ask you this: um, you, as a catcher, did you play anything else? Any other positions?
0: I played third base. I played a little outfield. One year we had a we had two the two, two catchers on the team We were the two leading hitters. Um, and the other catcher was a kid named Dick Clark, who played at BYU. And uh, not the American bandstand Dick Clark. Um, and that and, and Clark's idea of playing the outfield was to wait to see where the ball landed before he went after it. <laughs> so, so they, you know, we quickly decided that I would play the outfield. So I, I would play the outfield or fill in at third base. And, and you know, and I hit I hit third and Clark hit fourth. And I remember one day, we had a couple runners on base and beating out a bunt that was intended to be a sacrifice bunt just to move the runners into the scoring position for Clark. And he got a, a miracle base hit out of the bunt. And Clark walked up and hit a grand slam home run. See, I can still remember the ball going over the left center field fence in Tooele, Utah. Oh, uh-huh.
1: I remember when I I pitched a game. It was the championship game in a local tournament. Uh, We could have gone on to the the state finals and maybe the nationals after that. I was pitching it, and I remember that I got distracted on two occasions, and the same guy hit home runs off me. Uh, That I just, I today I watch them go. I can just see them flying through the air. And the game was over, and we lost. But uh, at any rate, I always remembered: don't get distracted. Pay attention to what you're doing. And that lesson actually helped me in the rest of my life. So, yeah.
0: Jo- well, I, actually, I think playing sports does that. You learn a lot of lessons from playing sports.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do.
0: You know, how to get along with people, people you don't even necessarily like or, or have anything in common with besides what you're doing at that particular time, but you get along with them and you learn stuff from them and you get great stories out of it, you know? And, you know, when you talk about catching, I remember playing in Smithfield, Utah one night and there, had a ball player named Tuffy Claybaugh and Tuffy Claybaugh ran up one side of me and down the other. And a collision at home plate <laughs> just destroyed me. <laughs> so the next time he came up, I walked out, told our pitcher, I want you to hit this son of a bitch. (laughs) And he kind of whimpered. And I said, if you don't, we're going to have words. And he said, okay. And he wound up and he threw his best fastball, which really wasn't that great a fastball. It hit Tuffy right in the heart. And Tuffy just kind of was like a mosquito bouncing off him. This guy was built like a, a brick, brick outhouse. And, uh, he looked at me and I looked at him. I said, Are
1: we even? He said, Yep. And then, yeah, I was there. So. <laughs> well, that's baseball in in those days, which both when I played and when you played, uh, it was a not a nicey nice game. I mean, you, there were some tough things that happened. Uh, just you talked about beating somebody or hitting them in the chest, but and or running somebody, running you over. Uh I remember we were playing a, go- a game later. It was a church league for pity's sakes. And <laughs> and our pitcher um uh was uh running down the base and the the pitcher for the other side, a great big guy, went over and tackled him. He just <laughs> tackled him.
0: Oh my. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> and later on one of the people in the stands said to me uh is this is this part of the game? Is this is this tackling and beating up people? Is this part of it? Is you know something missed here? And, but it, but it was rough, you know, at times.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, um, but you, I, I remember playing against a guy who had been just been in the big leagues a couple of years before. A guy named Sonny Robertson, who was a shortstop, and I was on first base, and somebody hit a ground ball to the second baseman. That, Second baseman threw it to Sonny who was coming across the bag. And he threw underhand. And if I hadn't hit the dirt, he would have taken my teeth out. <laughs> and I and I met him years later and I recalled the play for him. He didn't remember the play, but he just said, You know, that's the way we played in Pro Ball. And he said, I shouldn't have been doing that. But it but it was you're right, it was a t- it was a hard game played by hard guys.
1: Well, you know, there's other things, other sports that you got involved in. That you, uh, I understand that you played some basketball.
0: No, no, I, never, I mean I could shoot pretty well, but that was about. <laughs> but I, I was not a basketball player. I played a little football in high school, and uh, but baseball was my sport.
1: When did you start writing about it?
0: Um. Probably when I when I went to work in newspapers, and I started off as a city side reporter in Baltimore. So it was hard to write about baseball when you were covering a water and sewer meeting. Um, but I, you know, I I would find ways to do it. And, uh, but then, you know, but the uh, the first big league game I you went know, my first on the road assignment for the Washington Post when I went to work as a sports writer there was a a weekend series between the Tigers and the Baltimore Orioles who were in the hunt for a a pennant in uh, 1975. And, you know, uh, and and it was great. It was, well, the Orioles were a dream because it was the best clubhouse to work full of bright guys who talked and, and were insightful and smart and funny. And they had Earl Weaver managing them, who was just a piece of work, just a classic, never uttered a sentence that didn't have at least six profanities in it.
1: And, we're going to take a break right now, John. And, and uh, we're, when we come back, I would like to talk about the sport that uh, sort of made you famous, which is boxing. Okay. Uh, this is John Run with Respect, and we're talking to John Shulian, nationally syndicated columnist at one point in his life for the Chicago uh, Sun-Times, uh, twice awarded uh, Best Sports Columnist in the Country, and is now um, not resting on his laurels. He's out in Hollywood and writing scripts for famous movies and plays, I should say. So we'll be right back. Now back on with respect with John Schulian, sports writer, sports columnist, uh, wrote for Sports Illustrated for 35 years, famous in newspaper business, and also uh, as a creative writer in Hollywood. Now, uh, this is John Smotanek, on with respect, John, when we left off, I I teed this up. You acquired a fascination with the world of boxing, and How did that happen?
0: Well, uh, my introduction to boxing came through the the father of a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Jack McCarthy. Jack McCarthy was many things in Salt Lake City. He got us all summer jobs with the county parks department, mowing lawns and putting in sprinkler systems and fences and stuff like that. And he ran a card game in the back of a saloon called the Green Parrot, and he managed fighters and ran, and had a gym, and a and a, and a trainer named Chappy. It was all it was all out of a movie, you know. Um, and one of the fighters Jack had was a pretty good middleweight in the 50s, named uh, Milo Savage, who we'd gotten out of the Iowa Iowa State Penitentiary. Um, so. He, you know, right away you're weaving a spell with these kinds of guys. And then when I went off to write sports, I, you know, I, I always raised my hand for boxing. And the first, I, I made my bones at Sports Illustrated by writing a boxing story. Uh, they told me to send five ideas to the, the, the woman who was the editing the freelance writers there. She was a woman named Pat Ryan, who was just one of the great people in my, in my life and my career. She just helped me immeasurably. And she liked the idea about the boxing promoter who had a gym over a strip joint. Now, this was in Baltimore, Maryland, where there was a three-block section of town on East Baltimore Street called The Block. And it was nothing but strip joints and dirty bookstores. And a tattoo parlor run by Tattoo Charlie, and Polak Johnny's Polish Sausage Emporium, which was you could live on uh, Polak smothered in chili. Uh, there was just uh, it was a great place. So anyway, I wrote the piece, and 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 really caught the attention not only of Pat Ryan and started my relationship with uh, Sports Illustrated for all those years. Always as a freelancer, had a contract for a number of years and did pieces for the magazine periodically. But the sports editor at the Washington Post, a guy named George Solomon, saw the piece and liked it, and that sort of prompted him eventually to give me a call and talk to me about going to work at the Post. You, I sort of digress well, from boxing there.
1: So. Well, you, that's that's fine, but we have we got to uh, track your life too. When you go to the post uh, as a sports writer, um, it wasn't just all about boxing.
0: Oh no, I did everything there: basketball, football, um, you know, boxing. Um, you know, I wrote, I wrote a lot of features. Um, wrote a period, columns occasionally. Uh, but mostly take what we call takeouts long features. Um, on, usually on characters. I did a, a long, long series on what was then a novelty, black dominance in the NBA, David Dupree, who was the, who covered the Washington bullets for us. Uh, and I did that series together. And then I did one on the pro football mentality. Um, Just you know, just we always hustled and you know and did what we hoped was good work.
1: How many how many uh, characters uh, do you stick in your memory as being really unique and and great to write about? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I mean,
0: I'll give you an example. All right. There was a kid named Johnny Lira, fought out of Chicago, lightweight. Um, just a great kid. When he was 17 years old, he was the only white kid on the D tier in Cook County Jail. He was accused of attempted murder. And some gang kid came up to him and tried to pick a fight with him. But before the guy could pick the fight, Johnny had already hit him over the head with a mop handle, jumped on top of him and beat him half to death before they could, the guards could pull him off the, the kid. And after that, all the gang kids said, stay away from the little red-haired kid. He's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Johnny was Johnny was in and out of trouble with the law. He was the world's worst jewel thief. He was in a million street fights. Um, and it's like fun so there was a judge named Marvin Aspen who became a federal judge eventually in Chicago.
1: I remember him very well.
0: And he, he liked he saw something in Johnny, and he said, "I'm going to give you one last chance. If you screw this up, you're going to you're going to spend a lot of time in jail for the rest of your life." And Johnny cleaned his act up. Uh, and years later, um, we I was I forget what we were talking about. Well, my mother had died. My, my father had passed away about seven years before, and then my mother died. And I was t- talking to Johnny about it. He had heard the news and had called to commiserate. And he said, so you got any brothers and sisters? And I said, no, I'm an only child. He says, you're an orphan. And I said, well, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I guess I am. And Johnny said, well, I'm your brother now. Hmm. And that's all you have to know about Johnny Lira. And, and and so many of the fighters I talked to, interviewed, got to know, were, the, were cut from the same cloth. They were, they were no saints. They were usually from deprived neighborhoods, tough family backgrounds. I think Johnny actually had a good family. I know his sisters, and they're good people. Um, but, you know, t- tough kids who just who could tell you about shootouts they'd been in and robberies they'd done. And yet there was something beyond fascinating about them, but there was something that in a different set, if they'd grown up in a different set of circumstances, their lives would have been appreciably different.
1: How do you, I take it that not many of the boxers that you ran across went to Harvard or Yale or, (laughs) Ivy <laughs> um, the, the I
0: waiting for the first one so <laughs> but
1: they had something and you you've talked about a couple of people and, and stick to it in this I guess is is one character trait um wild energy sounds like another uh, character trait uh, that that many might have had. How do you how would you uh, get through to that person? I mean, to talk them, you want to go up and you say, Hey, Charlie, tell me about your life. And are they going to just bounce right out and tell you what, uh, how they, their family and, and all their ups and downs, or do you have to spend some time getting uh, closer to them?
0: Well, boxers are, mo- most athletes, I think, are very wary of the press. And then it's become more so as the years have gone on. Because once upon a time, Athletes in general needed writers so they could make their salary drive at the end of the season. <laughs> um, but boxers, if you walk into a gym with a notebook in your hand or a tape recorder, you're there. You're going to find a friend because they all have stories. They all talk. They, you know, even even the, the like the worst people I met in boxing. Sports were also in boxing, but they were usually promoters and managers Oh, and Don, Don King being, and Bob Arum being foremost among them.
1: What were they, what was Don King like?
0: Oh, he was a classic. I mean, he was a great character. He, he did, I think six years for manslaughter. Uh, he, he was a numbers boss in Cleveland and he kicked one of his numbers runners to death. Um, and uh, got out, and then when I met him, he was just absolutely horn-swoggling ABC with something called the U.S. Boxing Championships, which was full of fighters who had phony names, phony records, phony everything. Mm-hmm. Okay? He just he just trotted one tomato can out after another, it was and, he, and was shameless about it. There was a pamphleteer who sold his his uh, his newsletter outside Madison Square Garden on fight nights. A guy who called himself Flash Gordon, and Flash was the first guy to write about King and his corruption in the in the uh, in the uh, in the underground of boxing. And then I followed his lead and did my own reporting and and wrote about the, the tournament in my column. In the Chicago Daily News, and so King was putting on a one of his televised Sunday afternoon fights um, at his uh, at his alma mater, the Marion, Ohio, Correctional Institution, and he walks up to me before the fight. He's got his big pinky ring—I mean, big pinky ring—and a big cigar. He comes up to me, puts out his hand to shake, and he says, "John Julian." You're trying to cut my nuts off. (laughs) 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 And just laughed. We shook hands and he walked away. The man was bulletproof. Uh, But, you know, when you wrote bad about Don King, you know, he had his henchmen calling me and waking me in the mornings. Uh, Al Braverman, who was an antiques dealer in the Bronx. And Patty Flood, who actually turned out to be a great guy and was a great, became a great friend and who died much, much too soon. Uh, Patty just always looked like he'd just gotten out of jail and had the cigarette dangling from his mouth and the smoke going up into his eyes. And and, he used to call people up and writers who offended Don King somehow and say, we're going to kill you and bury you in the desert. But it was the it was, you know, when you're living through this stuff, when you're when you're part of it, and you're writing it, it's it's like it's almost like fiction. Like you couldn't make these guys up. They were so much fun to write about. They really were. Even the guys who tried to wanted you dead. Um, you know, the the fighters were great, and and of course, the greatest of them all, as for just being for being many things actually, was Muhammad Ali.
1: I want to. Um, we're going to be taking a break in a few minutes, but when we come back, I want you to talk about Ali because uh, he is uh, a tremendously uh, powerful figure in American life uh, and around the world. And we can talk about that one a little bit later. In fact, let's take a break right now and we'll come back. We're going to be talking about Muhammad Ali and your contact with him. This is John Smutanka, Run With Respect, and we're talking to John Shulian, who is a. Re- Sports reporter, sports columnist uh, for newspapers, uh, independent writer for Sports Illustrated, received twice the National uh, Award for Best uh, Sports Columnist. And now, later on, we'll be talking about his work in Hollywood. This is John Smotanker and With Respect, and we'll be right back. Now back on with respect with John Schuliams, sports columnist extraordinaire, uh, sports writer, and an observer of sports, sportsmen, and oddballs. <laughs> this is John tank on with respect and uh, so. John, we got, when uh, we broke, you, you mentioned the magic two words, Muhammad Ali. Did you uh, yeah. meet? You, you met him, I take it.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I, I covered all the fights Muhammad Ali never should have had, which is to say all the fights after the thrill in Manila with Joe Frazier. Yeah. Both of them should have retired, and neither of them did. Uh, and it's just too bad because it shortened both of their lives. And it took a, a fight that took a terrible toll. Um, as Jerry Eisenberg, the great New Jersey sports columnist, once said, they fought for the championship of each other. Mm. Um, uh, but Ali was, uh, Ali was important for so many reasons. There was boxing, of course, but there was also the civil rights movement, the black pride movement. Um, and, and there was also the the, the the war. I mean, he refused induction into the military, and it cost him pr- prime years of his career. Um, so when I, by the time I got around to him, I had just started writing sports in 75, and I think started right around the time the thrill in Manila was, was taking place. Um, so I, I was not assigned to do that. I was just a new guy on staff at the Washington Post. But he was fighting guys like uh, Ernie Shavers. Ernie Shavers was actually his last good, good fight in, in terms of just action and competitiveness. Alfredo Evangelista, the Spanish omelet. Uh, Jimmy Young. Uh, guys like that. Um uh, so, but uh, you know, uh, Ali was was just special. I got a great. My favorite Ali story was his 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 last or next to last fight was one once again that he never should have had. This was the one with Larry Holmes, who was a wonderful fighter. Um, and uh, so we're up in, in Ali's in Caesar's palace uh, um, in the morning but it has a bunch of writers in. he's a- answering questions we're getting close to the fight at this point and so I wind up sitting on the sofa next to him which is, usually wasn't where I uh, parked myself uh, for press conferences I was usually in the back hanging around um, but I so I take all the notes I'm going to be He's starting to repeat himself. Uh, So I'm just looking around the room, looking at the world from his point of view. And suddenly a large hand appears in front of my face, and he could make this uh, sound like a cricket by rubbing his thumb and forefinger together. And he does that, and I look over at him with a start. He waves his finger under my nose and says, Pay attention, white boy. (laughs) Um, and then, of course, he went out and got his brain speed out. That was that was like covering a car crash. That was that was awful. He fought once more in a softball park in the Bahamas against a guy named Trevor Burbick, um, and I, I I passed on that one. I I, I didn't need to see any more.
1: Did you see him afterwards? That is, uh, as he uh, had after he had retired, uh, he still was a. Powerful figure, and then I'm going to say uh, what the local take on on uh, Muhammad Ali was. But did you see him after his last fight? And you know, try to see what happened.
0: No, um, you know, I you know I would talk to people about him. I would talk to Angelo Dundee periodically. It was his manager.
1: Um, his manager.
0: His and, and his trainer. Trainer. And uh, and Angelo was a ter- terrific guy. Um, and really cared about Ollie, and then I think, went the distance with him only because he didn't want to see him being handled by anybody who didn't care about him, and believe me, there were plenty of leeches around who would have jumped at the opportunity, um, but uh, yeah, there was, you know, I mean, Ollie was, you know, he'd do magic tricks, he it was always funny before the before the fight. He lost his title to Leon Sphinx in uh, 1978, and before the fight, he, oh, he hadn't trained. He wasn't taking Sphinx seriously, um, so he said he wasn't talking. So he put he wore tape over his mouth all week, and he was still the most interesting guy. <laughs> 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 uh, well, and then you know, and then of course he came back and and won his title back from Spinks uh, in the Superdome in New Orleans. But it was a grand era for boxing. You had the Sugar Ray Leonard emerge. You had Roberto Duran, marvelous Marvin Hagler, and that great classic fight with Tommy Hearns. Um, just it was a, it was a, it was the last golden era of boxing.
1: What, what about a, when you go to a boxing match? It, there were um, the thrill in the middle of the uh, 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 what was it in Zaire? Uh, um, oh, the Rumble the in, the in the Jungle. And, and they were between people who were bigger than life. I mean, it, whoever it was, whether it was uh, Frazier or uh, Spinks Forman. or George Foreman. These yeah. these people and and Ali above them all in, in my view, um, what made them the people that were when they when you walk into the room, when they would walk into the room they would all the the air would go I and mean, they just sucked it all up. They were powerful people, but it wasn't yeah. just the ability to fight. It was not the fact that they were tall or brutal or nice or whatever. What is it? What was it? It's, it's
0: magic. There are there are just certain people. Who knows where it comes from? You know. Uh, you just you just and look at the way. I, and the foreman was an imposing figure. And in those days, he was a thug. He was out of the fifth ward in Houston, where blood runs in the gutters. Um, and he was a terrifying guy. And there was that one fiasco where. They had a TV thing. He fought five guys in one afternoon. I guess he wasn't doing anything that evening. Um, But Ali just won Zaire and the Africans over by they just, by the, he taught them all to to chant Ali Boumaye, which means kill him, Ali. (laughs) So he had all the natives in Zaire on his side before a foreman ever showed up. (laughs) <laughs> and, and there again George Simpson wrote about uh, well, about that fight the, the rumble in the jungle and uh, all the circumstances surrounding it and when all these plane took off to leave the country after the fight all the kids chasing it down the runway this great scene of all these kids following him you know either wanting him to come back or wanting to go with him but uh, the 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 magic probably the the grandest
1: moment of their lives had just ended. He was uh, he and and his family lived here in in uh, Michigan, southwestern Michigan, where I'm right talking from and and uh, his he had a mansion, but it was not you know they're not the typical thing, but he was a part of our community in ways that just stunned you when you when you figure when you found out what he was doing. He would just drop into a school or a police department and just say, hey, can let's have a cup of coffee. Or I remember I, my only contact with him directly was uh, I was standing in line one day at a car wash, and I was waiting to, to pay for my car being washed, and I was in a line. There were several people ahead of me, and, and I was reading a book, and I all of a sudden I heard somebody say, hey, champ, uh, how, you're getting your car washed too? And I looked up, and this guy... <laughs> I'm tallish, but I wasn't as tall as he was. And I kept looking up and up and up, and there is uh, Muhammad Ali. And he chit-chatted like it was over a backyard fence in a neighborhood. He was uh, friendly. He was uh, just folks. And the, when I talked to people in this area who ran into him casually, uh, he and his family were, to us, just folks.
0: Yeah. He was, good. he was magic with children. Oh, yeah. He could, he, was, he loved kids. They loved him instantly. You know, it was just, because he had that wonderful, he's a great-looking man, but he could make all of the funny faces with his eyes going wide. He'd pull a silver dollar out of their ear. He just, he would just mesmerize them, and it would take him, you know, a minute.
1: Yeah. When uh, my brother was uh, c- coming on a plane back from Washington to South Bend, Indiana, uh, he got on the plane, and once again, he was uh, quiet. It was a time um, probably after 2001, and everybody was somewhat on edge getting on a plane. And he got on, and he was, he was reading his newspaper, and he heard a woman say, without looking up, she, she said, all right, Mohammed, sit down right now. And, and my brother thought, uh-oh, this is not good. So we looked up, and Muhammad was Muhammad Ali. <laughs> so the plane took off, and after everybody was uh, allowed to get out of their seats, uh, he stood up, and he started doing magic tricks for, yeah. the, for the people in the audience, I mean, in, the, yeah. in the plane. It was great. He yeah. never forgot no, he- it. He never, my brother never forgot that encounter with Muhammad Ali. Talked to him after they got off the plane. Fascinating person.
0: Yeah. No, he was... one great airplane story, a very short one. So they're flying to Manila for the thriller, and Ali is on the plane, or on the plane with Ali, rather, is a wonderful writer from Sports Illustrated named Mark Cram, whose story on the thriller in Manila is probably... Perhaps the greatest boxing story ever read, written, and, and, and one of the greatest sports pieces in general ever written. And Mark Cram was a, a poet masquerading as a sports writer. And But Mark Cram did not like to fly. So for the whole flight, Ollie would peek back over his seat at Cram, who was sitting behind him, and say, Oh, Mark Cram, be careful. We're going to go down. We're going to go down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he was one of a kind. I had a, a philosophy professor. Uh, and in those days, uh, in the Catholic Church, they had uh, in our seminary, we could only uh, get lectures in Latin and we had to ask our questions in Latin. And I remember this one our metaphysics prof came in, and he started a Latin phrase, a Latin sing-song, and it was translated roughly, "Ah, person." Brothers, person, it's the greatest thing you can have. And who is the best person in the whole world? It is Cassius Clay. This was back before he became a Muslim. And he just would, his eyes would light up. And and this Catholic priest, talking in Latin, was mesmerizing talking about his, his idol, Cassius Clay. And it's just... Remarkable character in life, remarkable. But you met other people, um, and you talked about Frazier. Did you other other fighters? Did they? Uh, you talked about Sugar Ray Leonard. Was a great fighter. Um, what make made these people great? What made people them great, as boxers well, or as humans?
0: Excuse me, I didn't
1: hear the last part of that. What as as boxers or as human beings what makes these well no, I don't great? want to
0: overrate them as human beings they all had flaws believe me Ali certainly had his has flaws yeah and and one thing every great fighter shares maybe even some fighters who are not so great is a killer instinct there's there's a you have to have a mean streak to be a fighter and you have to have a and ali did some things where he He really humiliated some of the people he fought, Floyd Patterson in particular, because Floyd Patterson wouldn't call him by his Muslim name. He called Ali Cassius Clay. Um, And Ali just pillaged him and said, What's my name now? What's my name now? Um, So you have to be, be aware of, you know, we, we tend to really deify Ali, and he was I think he was a fascinating guy and, and a, a and a good human being at heart, uh, but he did have his moments. So I think when you talk about what lifts these guys, um, look at the Sugar Ray Leonard fight with uh, with with Tommy Hearns. Hearns. Had Leonard beat, I believe, three times, three different times in that fight, and each time Leonard came back and 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 got a, got the upper hand until A won the fight. Um, and that's a question of heart, I think. That Leonard's heart Leonard had a great fighter's heart. Um, he was, you know, a, a guy who was made up of like different parts of great fighters. He was a student of boxing history. So he'd borrow this move from Sugar Ray Robinson, including, and also borrowed his name. Um, and, and this move from somebody else. And then, voila, you have Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, but so there's there's an intellectual, you might not think it, but there is an intellectual uh, side or element to boxing. But... Uh, but you know, when it comes right down to the primal uh, aspect of it, it, it becomes about heart. And you look at at, uh, at Ali and Fraser in Manila. I mean, they were both dying in the ring. They were not going to quit until Eddie Fetch, who was working, a great guy, who was working Frazier's corner, said, I can't let you go out again for the I can't let you go any farther. I yeah, yeah I love you too much for that. And Ali was sitting in his corner and he was ready to quit. And finally you know, and Dundee said, Don't quit just like Dundee had said, don't quit to him all those years before, when Sonny Liston had some foreign substance on his glove and it got got on in Ali's eyes. And he's yelling, "I can't see! I can't see! Stop the fight!" Um, and uh, you know, and then Dundee said the, "The hell with that! You're going to keep gonna push you out there. You're going to win this fight." So the, the the price these guys pay, or what, the the greatness that they extract from themselves, uh, is is really something that mere mortals like you and me. Mm -hmm. don't know anything about. Um, They they just, or if we are able to find something that we can make that commitment, it doesn't involve something that's going to kill us necessarily. Um, And these guys can die. Any fighter, whether he's a great fighter or whether he's the biggest tomato can in the world, risks death when he steps in the ring. And that makes them all worthy of some kind of admiration you may also think they're slightly crazy and certainly there's an element of that too but um, um, I don't know if that answers your question
1: it does but. yeah it does it, it, you've given me several character traits that that uh, I'm going to be thinking about when I when I look back and, and I go back to read the articles about the thrill in Manila and uh, and whatnot it sounds like uh, that the great writers capture the essence of a human drama, and it's you know two good guys or bad guys or whatever you want who are duking it out in the middle of a of a ring, and one can die. They both know that they you know they they're, they can have they can lose their their ability to, to talk, uh, they can they can have brain damage. All of this, uh, and yet they get out there and stand toe to toe. With someone who might impose all those uh, bad results on them. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to John Shulian, sports writer, sports columnist, best national sports columnist uh, and for the nation on two occasions, and a great writer. We're going to talk more about his life uh, after this break. This is John Smutanka. Run with respect, and we'll be right back. back on With Respect with John Schulian, who is a sports writer, sports columnist, uh, writer of fascinating stories about fascinating people. Not necessarily uh, all saints, uh, but not necessarily all sinners. But they all have something to, to look at and understand. This is John Smutanker and we're on With Respect. John, in the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about. Uh, I'd like to do another show with you because I'd like to talk about your work in Hollywood and with, and how you moved from the world of sports into the world of television and um, video, media. The media, but uh, John, what is the, what? Why do you write? What is what's the big deal? What is. What compels you to write?
0: I can't do anything else. <laughs> I, you know, I, my standard line is the yeah, question is, well, I can't sell you a pair of shoes, and I could never pound a nail straight. So what <laughs> else am I going to do? Um, I'm just, you know, I have been writing. Oh, I don't want to say all my life. I wasn't that precocious or anything. But when I was a kid. In Los Angeles, an only child, lived, you know, a a reasonably solitary existence. Um, I would go into my room, close the door, turn on a black rhythm and blues station out of Long Beach called K-Fox, where the disc jockey at that hour of the night was Johnny Otis, who wrote Willie and the Hand Jive. And had his own TV show. He was actually a Greek American guy who'd married a black woman and adopted a, a, a black lifestyle, and 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 showcased black talent on TV. Uh, and has to be one of the real important guys in terms of rhythm and blues music. But but I would listen to Johnny Otis's show every night, and I would write my own newspapers, draw them up. Uh, you know, headlines and stories and all that sort of thing. Or I would take a a movie title that I had seen in the newspaper and make my version of the movie by drawing cartoon strip. And then I would get a piece of cardboard and I would cut slits on the sides of it and draw curtains around those slits and make a screen and then pull the cartoon strip through one frame at a time and i don't think i had any dialogue um, but i i would explain what was going on in each scene to whoever my audience was and my audience of course was always my mother and father and then i would charge them to see this because i understood even as a ten-year-old kid that hollywood was about the profit motive <laughs>
1: <laughs> this, this, uh, this reminds me, uh, we had a, uh, a, a recent uh, guest, Peter Osnos, who uh, wrote for many years and now is a, was a publisher of, of books uh, for the New York Times. He uh, was a writer, but uh, wrote books of, by the presidents, or pardon me, didn't write them, he uh, edited them and published them. But at any rate, he said something which I found very interesting and challenging. He said, You, ever, you have to sit down and write your story about your life and I said well yeah I don't have time he says no you have time one page a day about your life all you have to do is one page a day and at the end of the year you're going to have 365 pages but he said yeah. it's it's something you have to do to and, and his what he was talking about was to leave a history for your family if nothing else and so I'm going to ask you have you ever sat down and wrote about your life and yourself, and if so, where can we find it?
0: Well, a study would have. I, I did something for, uh, my, my friend Alex Belf ran, ran a website called Bronx Banter Blog. It started off as a blog about the Yankees. Alex is a huge Yankee fan. Uh, And uh, but it, it because Alex is a man of many interests, many passions. It quickly spun off into pop culture. So you're talking about music and movies and books and all sorts of cool stuff. And Alex has parlayed that into running something called the Stacks Reader Online, and. Um, uh, he's, he runs Esquire Classic and he's an arch, he's become a great archivist of journal, journalism, literary journalism in particular. And, uh, so at one point he asked me to do a Q and A about my life. And then uh, it, uh, he would give me the question and I would write my answers because I've never really been able to talk at great, like it great make any sense, which is why I feel great sympathy for you, John. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but I did write something that, that's online. It's called from Ali to Zena. Uh, you, we've discussed Ali here today and Zena, of course, is Zena, the warrior princess who, uh, paid for the house I'm living in. Um, and I was one of the creators of that old girl. Um, and in Ali and in Kizina, I, I sketch out my, my life story such as it is.
1: John, um, we're going to have you back because uh, I do want to talk about the Hollywood aspect of your life. And we just don't have uh, seven hours to, to co- capture everything <laughs> that you've done. Uh, I will tell you one uh, story. There is a lawyer um, locally here who... I once asked him, I said, uh, I'll call him Charlie. Charlie, why is it that you became a lawyer? And he looked at me with deadpan eyes and sort of tilted his head. And he said, well, by process of elimination, I found out I couldn't do anything else. And that basically expressed how he became a lawyer. And what I'm struck by are there are so many people who, do in fact try so many different things, and this is another thing I want to talk about in our next show, is we people, most of us, uh, poor mortals, when we're marching through life, we march on a zigzag, not on a straight line. We go to this, we go to that, we go up, we go down, we have uh, marriage, divorce, illness, uh, orphan, uh all those things, and the zigzags, sometimes we think about ourselves and say, oh, if I had only gone on a straight line, I'd be so much farther ahead. And I found out, I don't think that's true. I think it's the zigzags which make you interesting.
0: I I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, you know, I there's there's something about wanting to see what's on the other side of the hill. You know, and if you have to fall out of line to go see what, what it is, so be it. Mm-hmm.
1: John, thank you very much for joining us on With Respect, and I look forward to doing another show with you. We'll talk about lots of interesting people and uh, and your role in uh, not only sports but in television and, and um, maybe some movies and certainly a, a novel.
0: Sounds this is- good, John. I look forward to it.
1: This is John Smetanka. We've been talking to John Shulian, sports writer, sports columnist for multiple media outlets and is a very fascinating observer of human nature. Uh, This is John Smetanka run With Respect. And remember, until next week, our motto, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.